of the many faiths practiced in the world, Hinduism is considered to be the oldest living religion. In India, it has endured for thousands of years and has dotted the landscape with innumerable temples. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. It's been a while since we've visited India, about 1,900 years by my count, when we met Ashoka the Great. But Ashoka was Buddhist, so we haven't had a chance yet to discuss Hinduism, the world's third most practiced religion behind Christianity and Islam, with over a billion Hindus worldwide. Unlike Christianity and Islam, Hinduism can't point to a single important founding figure or starting point. It's more of a collection of cultural traditions and rituals dating back thousands of years. In fact, it appears to be the oldest religion still practiced today, with its roots going back to one of our independent cradles of civilization, the Indus River Valley Civilization. They do have a collection of four sacred texts called the Vedas, which detail rituals, philosophy, and other spiritual ideas. My very superficial research turned up varying views and debates on the history of Hinduism, so I won't pretend to have much insight to offer on it. There are even differing interpretations on whether Hinduism is polytheistic or monotheistic with its many gods merely being different manifestations of the one true god, Brahman. Two Hindu gods most people have heard of are Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. The one Hindu holiday I know I'd heard of is Diwali, the Hindu festival of lights celebrated all around the world. Yoga, which has become popular in the West over the last couple decades, is a Hindu practice. To continue my practice of oversimplification, I guess we could just say that Hinduism is the spiritual and cultural traditions of the people of India. It doesn't have a governing body or a single point man like the Buddhists have in the Dalai Lama. After Ashoka the Great, various empires had waxed and waned for centuries, controlling different parts of what we now know as India. By the time of our story today, in the early 17th century, that was the Muslim Mughal Empire. Though I'm guessing they were at least somewhat religiously tolerant, as the movie today gave no hint of anyone having a problem with the Hinduism of every character in this film. Indeed, to the point I was shocked to learn that the country was under Muslim control at the time. So, our story opens in 1618, when our title character Tukaram, or Tuka as everyone calls him, is a boy, maybe 10 or 11 years old, they, they don't say. He's caught by his friends hugging a statue of the Hindu god Lord Vital. Again, Hindu gods are more complicated, and Vital seems to be more of a regional deity and considered to be a manifestation of Vishnu or Krishna, and worshipped as the only true god by his adherents. Tuka's friends tease him for being too religious, and his mother is worried his embrace will offend the god and bring bad luck on their family. In their village, Tuka's dad serves as the main moneylender, so most of his day is spent loaning money and collecting debts. The family is most decidedly Hindu, but their dad emphasizes that there's a time and a place for that kind of thing. He gets on his boys if religious interests get in the way of work time, and this continues as the boys get older. Tuka's older brother is married, an arranged marriage, but he's so pious the movie implies the marriage is never consummated. He also manages to lose a donkey he's tending to because he's too lost in reflection and meditation. We jump forward 10 to 15 years, it doesn't exactly say, but we're coming to an historical event that will help us tell when this is supposed to be. 
Tuka is now married, but his wife is sickly. Everyone lives together in the same house, so it doesn't seem to be a house exactly. They are fairly well off, and it's a sort of complex with several rooms surrounding a small courtyard. But you have Tuka and his wife, both of his parents, his older brother and his wife, and Tuka's sister and younger brother. Tuka's wife is in poor health and hasn't been able to have any children. His older brother is basically worthless to the family at this point. He won't touch his wife and won't work. He just sits quietly and reads or prays all day. Against his own wishes, Tuka's wife convinces him to take a second wife in order to father children. His parents have been pushing for this as well, so that the money lending business will have an heir. So now, Tuka's second wife is also living at the complex with everyone else. His first wife puts on a brave face, as she had to coax him into this second marriage, but when Tuka goes to his second wife, she weeps and is consoled by her mother-in-law. We get a brief look at the political climate and the caste system, just a small dispute over taxes that the priests don't want to pay, so Tuka says he doesn't want to pay his either. Uh, then, ironically, Tuka's first wife gets pregnant before his new bride does. A drought is underway, and everyone is preparing for the famine that is sure to follow. Tuka's father dies unexpectedly, and a few months later, his mom does as well, followed by his sister-in-law. His older brother then disappears. He still basically never talked, but now that the only three people he felt kept him at home there were, were gone. We get a powerful line of dialogue here as characters discuss the beginning of the plight in the nation at the time. Quote, remember that the first casualty in a famine is humanity, unquote. Tuka then does what he feels is the right thing and opens his family's grain supply to the whole community. At first, they are gracious and grateful, but that instantly turns to greed and Tuka's family is left with nothing. His wife and their young son die. I will jump in here to say that this is how we know where we are in our timeline. Tukaram did lose his first wife and son to starvation during a great famine during the years 1630 to 1632. It's also unclear if the two marriages overlap, as they do here in the movie, but they do get the names of his two wives correct. Finally, it rains, the drought, and soon the famine are now over. A few more years pass, and Tuka is just disillusioned with his life. He gives up his money-lending business and becomes a farmer, but the vast majority of his time now is devoted to writing poetry and songs and talking to people about philosophy and faith, and... This is how we today come to know him. Nothing up to this point has really given us any reason for him to be an historical figure. I did go ahead and detail the first half of the movie to give us a look at India in the early 17th century. Tukaram was a popular poet and de facto spiritual leader from this time. Back to the movie, where Tuka feels liberated without the stress of his father's business that, while it provided for his family, provided nothing for his soul. He says the world is too focused on materialism. He develops quite a following and has a flock around him as he goes on pilgrimages. He says that the priests aren't necessary to know God, which sets up two priests to be the antagonist for the remainder of the film. He says, I became my own judge. I did not blindly follow the majority. Here, Tuka meets King Savaji, who becomes a big fan of his. Again, this is another reason I was surprised to learn that the country was under Islamic control at the time, but the Hindu king Savaji is an historical figure. Some scholars do believe Tuka and Savaji met, though Savaji must have been rather young at the time, as he was around 20 when Tukaram died. Savaji in the film says his father failed to establish an empire, but Savaji will go on to succeed. 
His Maratha Empire formally began in the 1670s and is credited with helping to end the Mughal control in India. Back to the movie. Tuki gets in trouble with the religious authorities, basically for getting so many people to feel that the priests aren't necessary. Through this second half of the film, it's easy to see elements of Martin Luther or Jesus or Gandhi in Tukaram. He challenges the status quo in a way that upsets the establishment. In fact, Gandhi translated some of Tuka's works while in jail. Though Tuka makes his prosecutors look foolish during his trial, they rule against him and he is ordered to be exiled, stop writing, and to destroy all copies of his writings. After the trial, Tuka sits by the riverbank and fasts for 13 days. The people hear about this and flock to his location, with others spouting the poetry from memory that Tuka is no longer allowed to perform. The closing voiceover says that his poems may have been destroyed, but they were then immortalized and sung for 400 years. St. Tukaram's poems continue to float. Now, his Wikipedia page isn't particularly in-depth and doesn't mention his conflicts with the priest and his punishment here, but I did find another site that referred to it. So, while recognizing that the film no doubt takes some creative license, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt on these seemingly general facts and in capturing the overall spirit of who Tukaram was. Most people are somewhat familiar with the caste system in India, Generally speaking, it's a division of the population into tiered social classes, and its roots date back to ancient India. Obviously, Europe saw similar class distinctions of nobility, clergy, merchants, and peasants. But my interpretation would be that in Europe, it was more incidental and on more of a spectrum, while in India, it was more formalized and you were only ever in one caste. There was no spectrum with indistinct borders. The exact castes, however, have fluctuated over the centuries and could vary in parts of the country. Despite being financially well-off, Tukaram was from a lower caste, which is part of the reason the priests were against him. How dare he presume to be able to do what they do? Another historical figure we meet in the film is Bahinabai, a woman from the highest Brahmin caste who humbled herself before Tukaram and begged to become his disciple. Her role in the movie isn't particularly significant, but they threw her in because she was real and serves as a great example of Tukaram's general disregard for the caste system. Having her as a disciple is one of the things used against Tukaram during his trial. The film Tukaram isn't even listed on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has a 7.0 on IMDb and is available to watch on Netflix as of this recording. Elsewhere in the world around this time... The Thirty Years' War in Central Europe began in 1618, the same year today's movie opened. In 1649, right around the time Tukaram died, King Charles I of England was executed for high treason during the English Civil War, basically for refusing to accept a constitutional monarchy. Mount Vesuvius in southern Italy erupted in 1631, right in the middle of the famine in India. Best known for its destruction of Pompeii in 79 CE, Vesuvius has been active plenty since then. The 1631 eruption was one of the biggest, with 3,000 people killed. The most recent big eruption was in 1944. And our story next week begins right after the time of the Indian famine in 1633. We'll be following European priests into Japan during a very dark time for Christians there, with Martin Scorsese's 2016 film Silence, starring Andrew Garfield. <laughs>